0: So we're in Psalm 7, but you might want to keep a finger there and go all the way back to Genesis 18, for you see, Abraham was shocked to learn what God was about to do. Abraham called by the Lord out of a foreign land, away from multiple gods to follow, and you know the story, he follows God into the land that was promised to him, God promised to bless Abraham and his offspring through Isaac and Jacob, and on down through Israel. He promised to bless the whole world. And so Abraham knew God to be a God who blessed, and a God of of grace and generosity and goodness. He didn't yet know God to be a God of wrath, and so naturally he was shocked when he learned that God was actually going down to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And the story is told in Genesis chapter 18, I'll pick it up in verse 17, that the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the world will be blessed. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city, will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? (laughs) Abraham's heart is crying out what our hearts cry out so often, justice. Justice. Fairness, equity. So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham replied, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes, suppose 50 righteous are lacking five, will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. He spoke to him yet again and said, well, suppose 40 are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the 40. And he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry. And shall I speak? Suppose there are 30 found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, and you got to wonder, when is Abraham going to figure out that he should stop? <laughs> now behold, I ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 20. And he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry. And shall I speak only this once? Suppose ten are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the ten. And as soon as he finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed and Abraham returned to his place. And you know the rest of the story. I start with that because that's the arc of Psalms 7, 8, 9, and 10. And what I mean by that is the connection across all four of these Psalms is the cry of the heart of man for justice. That God would be just, that God would be fair, that God would be equitable. That He wouldn't throw out the righteous with the wicked. That He would judge those who require judgment, but those who don't, He would treat fairly. And so we're going to listen in tonight as David cries out for justice, thanks God for justice, Praise for God's justice. Now we've seen already, and we've talked about the fact, that this book of praises, the Sefer Tehillim, it's the meeting place of divine inspiration and human emotion. And you're going to get some of that from David tonight. But curiously, one of the things that we human beings are most passionate, most emotional about, is justice. We hate unfairness, especially when it's happening to us. And we want to know that God Himself is going to be fair. So it's been suggested that the right inscription... To post above Psalm 7 is Abraham's question in Genesis 18.25. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Won't you be just? Will you not be fair? Psalm 7, verse 1. O Lord my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me. Or He will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there is none to deliver. If you've ever been cut down, if you've ever been wrongly accused, if you've ever been slammed by slander or gossiped about, Spurgeon calls this the Song of the Slandered Saint. The Song of the Slandered Saint. David is the saint. David is the one who has been slandered. Who's the slanderer? Well, look at the heading. It's called a Yonh. Uh, of David, I'll explain what that is in a second. Which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush of Benjamite. So this is a song against Cush, the Benjamite. Cush is the slanderer. Now, a shigayon, that word, is literally a wildly passionate cry. It's a style of Hebrew poetry. I looked this up. It's interesting. We would call it Dithrambic. Or dithyrambic. A dithyram is a, is a poem that is rhythmically erratic. It, it, it seems almost completely disjointed. Lyrically, it, it comes and goes and there's no real rhyming pattern to it. Musically, it would be chaotic. But it's a Hebrew type of poetry that is purposeful to express a wild array of emotion. So what you get as we're reading through Psalm Seven is the sense of David just from one end of the spectrum to the other, feeling his emotion, crying it out—a dithyramb, a frustrated, unrestful. Well, Kyle and Delich say it's a painful unrest, defiant self-confidence, triumphant ecstasy, calm trust, and prophetic certainty—all wrapped up in one psalm. All these states of mind find expression in the irregular arrangement of the strophes of this Davidic dithyramb. And it's all written against this man named Cush. Who is Cush? It may have been Saul. There are those who think maybe this was a subtle way that David was expressing his frustration against Saul himself without naming Saul. Uh, people have thought that because Saul's father's name was Kish. So Cush, Kish, maybe it's kind of close there. First Samuel 9, 1-3 tells us Saul's father's name. So perhaps that's it, that David is naming Saul here. We know it's a Benjamite, so perhaps it's not Saul, it's just some slanderous sycophant. Someone sidling up to Saul, trying to gain or garner Saul's favor. Someone within Saul's group, hey, he had no lack of ambitious advisors. Saul had no lack of conniving counselors, we've already seen a few of them. A man by the name of Shimei, the rock thrower, talked about Shimei, I believe, last week. Sheba, whose Scripture refers to as the worthless fellow. How'd you like that for a a tag on your name? little name tag. I'm Pastor Rick, a worthless fellow. That's Sheba. Doeg, whose name alone says something. Doeg, and he is the devilish dude. Scripture doesn't call him that, I do. But there are all these men, so it was probably one of them who was slandering David, coming up to Saul and talking negatively about him. Whoever it was... Psalm 7 comes from the same period of time as Psalm 6 that we looked at on Sunday morning. That's David's decade as a desperado. When David was on the run, that 10 years between really his his conquering of Goliath and his glory in Israel as a great warrior, and then 10 years where he was just running from Saul, running for his life because Saul wanted him dead in Saul's jealous rage. So that's the time period of Psalm 7 as well as Psalm 6, and it's interesting, the way these psalms are laid out together, there is, I believe, divine organization. Now we don't know if the psalms were handed you know, to the, the, the people of Israel, if they came in this bundle, or if it was someone perhaps ascribed Ezra later on, because we know Ezra compiled Probably the first canon of the Hebrew scripture. So maybe Ezra put it together, but there is the stuff of the divine in the Psalms, not just individually, but in how they're laid out, as I think you'll see this evening. So Cush, might have been Saul, might have been one of his advisors, but it was in that time period, and someone is horribly slandering David, really going after him, to the point that David sounds terrified. These first two verses... Oh Lord my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me, or he will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there is none to deliver. He says, O oh Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to my friend, or have plundered him who without cause was my adversary, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life down to the ground, and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. So David pauses. This is wonderful. I love this about David. What's he saying? He begins with a personal EKG. David does his own heart check. He says, someone out there is slandering me, I'm terrified, I'm taking my refuge in, in you, Lord. But before he begins to discuss or pray about this slanderer, before he even goes there, David says, but let's start with me. I want you to check my heart, Lord, against wrongdoing. This is the way to approach all the Psalms. You approach them personally first. You approach them for yourself Before how they might impact others around you or or the assembly. It's a great example of where we should begin, especially when we come up against judgment or slander or criticism. If you're taking notes, you might jot this down. Confession before accusation. Confession before accusation. David says, Lord, start with me. Let's begin right here. Psalm 139.23, David will say, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. David's called a man after God's own heart. Would you like to be a man, a woman, after God's own heart? The key is beginning with your own heart. Which is what David had a tendency to do. He always started with himself. And there's no better place to begin than right there, confession before accusation, especially when your heart already belongs to the Lord. Because that, guess what? As you confess to the Lord, He is tender and gracious to receive your confession. That's so what I love about confession in, in our faith. Is that I don't have to worry about immediate judgment. God doesn't want to immediately drop the hammer. Now maybe in some of our relationships you might think, if I go and confess this to Him... If I go tell her this, I'm just going to get in trouble. I've got to keep this to myself. It's not that way with the Lord. Romans 8.27 says, He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Lord wants to receive our confession. And when we confess, when we bring it to Him, when we open our hearts to Him, He is the first to heal and forgive and restore. So confession before accusation. Before we start pointing the finger at other people, we say, Lord, start with me. What's wrong here? What needs fixing in my heart? And 1 John 1, 1.9 tells us if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 6. So David begins confession before accusation. Verse 6. He then goes into this prayer. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. And lift up yourself, lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries, and arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples encompass you, and over them return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. You already see how this is dithyrambic. You see how he begins in this place of, I've taken my refuge in you. Oh, I'm confessing before you. And Now it's like, Lord, fight for me. Now he's getting his back up. Now David is calling out saying, God, I need you to intervene. I need you here. I need you to judge. In verse 7, it's interesting. He says, let the assembly of the peoples encompass you. What we're seeing here is David imagining a great assembly as if a courtroom. A courtroom of all the gathered saints. And God is there. But David's courtroom is different than Job's courtroom was. Job called for that. I want to meet you in court. I want my day in court, Job said. And David's saying the same thing, but differently. Job was saying, I want to meet God in court and contend with you, Lord. David's saying, I want to meet you in court so that you will contend for me. I need your defense. I need you to be my attorney, Lord. My litigator. My litigator. To go before me. And so, David's envisioning this great assembly with the Lord seated as judge on high, contending for David, and in return, God is getting the glory from all the people. By the way, in verse is it 8, where David says... Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. That doesn't mean that David's saying, I want you to look at me and judge me based on me. He's not denying grace here. What David is saying is he's not claiming to be sinless. He's claiming to be innocent of the charges. Whatever the slanderer is saying about David, David is saying, it's not true. And Lord, you know it's not true. And I am sinless of this. Which is another great place to be. Not only confession before accusation, but innocence before allegation. Innocence before allegation. What do you mean? Live your life in such a way that you are innocent before the allegations come. In other words, do nothing that the enemy can grab hold of and use for slander against you. Live in such a way That you are, as the Bible talks about, that you are above reproach. That if someone's looking for some way to reproach you, to slander you, to gossip about you, nothing sticks. There's nothing that they can find on you. Does that mean you're perfect? No, we all have a sin nature. But to strive to live above reproach. We are called to be holy, the Lord says, as I am holy. Now some would say, well, I can't live above reproach. Why even try? Because God has called you to it. And where you fall and where you fail, man, His grace is there to receive you and to save you. But for your part, Philippians 2.15 says, Prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. First Thessalonians 5.22 Abstain from all appearance of evil. Avoid the place where someone can look and say, What's she doing there? Why is he coming out of that bar? Why is he hanging out with her instead of his wife? Avoid all appearance. Consider the company that you keep. What does that say about your relationship with Jesus? The places you frequent. Give the devil nothing because I guarantee you he will use whatever he can get his grimy hands on. Verse 9. David says, Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous God tries the hearts and minds. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge. And a God who has indignation every day. Let me tell you, if you ever think a day goes by where maybe God misses the injustice of the world, not according to David. He has indignation every single day. Not a moment goes by where God isn't frustrated, upset, angry with some of what He's seeing going on on planet Earth. He is a God who has indignation every day. Third thing to note, vindication before indignation. What do you mean? I mean, we need to set our vindication, our desire for justice, we need to take that and set it before the indignation of the Lord. Hand it over to Him. Set your desire to be justified before God's righteous judgment and leave it there. Because God is already indignant. You don't need to be. Isn't that freeing? I don't have to be upset about stuff. I don't have to be frustrated. I don't have to be worried Where's our country going? Where's my life going? Where's this world going? God's already indignant. He already sees it. If you're upset, give it to Him. Your vindication is His business. Leave it with the Lord. I don't know about you, but the more I try to dig myself out, the deeper the hole gets. Leave it with the Lord. Romans 12.18, Paul says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved. Leave room for the wrath of God. It's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Which means, justice will be done. Absolutely, you can go to the bank on this in every circumstance, every situation. Know this. If you've been wronged, it will be made right. Really? Yes. Absolute certainty. If you have been wronged, God is going to make it right. You don't have to fight that fight. If the attack against you, however, is just, (laughs) then confess. As David did at the beginning of this psalm, confess and let it have its cleansing effect. But if the attack is unjust, the Lord is going to stand before you. He promises to be that shield, to be that defense. How can I be confident in this? How can I know this to be a certainty? Because we've already seen the Lord take the hits for us. Multiple times across His face, the Lord took the hits. He took the hits across His back, on His brow. He took a hit in each hand. He took a hit through His feet. He took another hit through His side. God has already stood for us. He's already been in the place that we should be. Jesus already hung on the cross. We, above all people, should be able to look back at that point in time and say, God is my defense. God will make right even what is wrong in me. For all the slanderous charges of the enemy, the source of our confidence and the source of our innocence is in the cross of Jesus Christ. Romans 8, verse 1 says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which is great news. Man, people can slander me all day long, but as far as God's concerned, I stand uncondemned. I am not condemnable because I am in Jesus Christ. And you can try to condemn me all you want, but there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I happen to be one of those. In Christ Jesus. And you cannot condemn me. How God do this? Romans 8.3, By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh. God said, that's what needs to go. That's what doesn't stand. But you, he would say, my child, you will stand if you will stand in me. Put another way, as David said, our refuge, our refuge is the Lord. Our self-defense is superfluous. Unnecessary. You really don't have to stand to defend yourself. Leave it to the Lord. He continues on in verse 12. If a man does not repent, and he's referring now to God, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. David's using warrior terminology here, military language to describe God's preparation for vindication. Man, the bow is bent. And the arrows are sharp. And God stands ready to judge leave it to the Lord man leave it to the Lord but David goes on and this is wonderful he recognizes that there's a fundamental spiritual reality that even precedes the judgment number four in your notes retribution before execution (laughs) there is a retribution that comes before God executes judgment and that's this sin ensnares the wicked before judgment comes look at verse 14 Behold, talking about the wicked man, he travails or labors with wickedness, and he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out and has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head, and his violence will descend upon his own pate. I never had a pate before I turned about 40. I found that my pace getting bigger every day. But the wicked person will have his own violence descend on him. The hole that he's digging, he's going to fall into. The Bible puts it this way. Be sure your sin will find you out. Numbers 32, 23. It's going to find you out. It's not God watching you to pounce on you. It's the Lord saying, your sin is going to do it. Your own sin is going to find you and track you down and knock you in the hole that you're digging. Even before I pour out my wrath on a Christ-rejecting world, your own sin is going to be your downfall. Your own decisions, your own choices of rebellion are going to hurt you. I've shared before, there are spiritual laws and properties just as there are physical laws and properties. And this one is one of the most sound. If you sin, it's going to come back around. And the only way to avoid it coming back around is to give your sin to Jesus Christ. The only way not to feel the fallout from all of our our sin choices is to give it to Jesus and allow Him to take it at the cross. Because otherwise, Galatians 6-7, whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And so if I'm laboring in wickedness, I'm digging my own pit. The good news is the Bible also says if I'm sowing to the Spirit... I'm going to reap eternal life. And that's the invitation for us. Verse 17. I will give thanks to the Lord according to His righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Feeling slandered? Feeling abused? Misused? Or accused? Give thanks to the Lord for His righteousness because His righteousness will cleanse you. His righteousness will heal me. His righteousness restores. Now, before we go on to the next psalm, I want to point out something kind of amazing in this wild dithyrambic psalm. There's prophecy here. And if you read this psalm, it almost sounds like, in fact, I think it very easily could be read as the cry of the remnant of Israel in the tribulation. The cry for justice. The cry for God's defense and protection as the man of lawlessness, Antichrist, rages against the people. Just look at a few things here, and I encourage you to go back and, and track this through yourself on your own time. But verse 2 He will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there is none to deliver. The devil as pursuer, as antagonist. Antichrist raging against the people, of Israel. The lion. The lion. First Peter 5, 8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And let's put it a little more succinctly in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 13. I'm going to quickly read this. When the dragon saw he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. The woman is Israel. The male child being Jesus. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she would be nourished for a time and times and half a time in the pres- from the presence of the serpent. A time, time, half a time. That's three and a half years. So saying for the latter half of the tribulation that Israel will be in a place of protection. But it says the serpent poured water out like a river out of his mouth after the woman so he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman And the earth opened up its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. And so the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Speaking about a horrifying time in the life of Israel. When the people have come to a realization... Zechariah tells us, God says, I'm going to bring, well, two-thirds are going to perish, but I'm going to bring a third through the fire and protect them and keep them safe. And that third, having acknowledged Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, believing finally He is our Messiah, that third will have protection, but the devil will be raging, seeking to devour, wanting to wipe them out. Look at verse 6 of Psalm 7. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries, the rage there of the enemy. And arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. Down in verse 12. If a man does not repent, he'll sharpen his sword. He, bend, he has bent his bow and made it ready. He has prepared for himself deadly weapons and makes his arrows fiery shafts. And you read through the time of tribulation, Revelation 6 through 19, and you can see the weapons of the Lord. Rounding out the whole wrath of God poured out on a Christ-rejecting, sinful, Israel-hating world in 100-pound hailstones coming down out of the skies in God's anger. Jesus put it this way. He said in Matthew 24:21, Then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. There, nothing like this has ever happened before. And I'll just insert this. Those who say that happened to Israel in AD 70, nothing like it. Well, the Holocaust was worse. So right there, that just blows the whole AD 70 perspective out of the water because the Holocaust was worse. And Jesus said there would never be anything like it again. Well, the tribulation is yet to come. Verse 7, Let the assembly of the peoples encompass you and over them return on high. This, this picture of the gathering of the saints around the Lord Jesus Revelation 7 verse 9 after these things John wrote I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands one of the elders answered saying to me these are those these who are clothed in the white robes who are they and where have they come from? And I said, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So David, he gets this picture here of the assembly encompassing the Lord. And we see that happening there in Revelation 7. Down in verses 14-16. through Behold, he travails with wickedness. He conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out and has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his head. His violence will descend upon his own pate. And man, that reads like Antichrist. That sounds exactly like the man of lawlessness. What he will do and what will happen to him. Daniel 11.38 says he will honor a god of fortresses or literally weaponry. A God whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. Antichrist is going to rage against Israel until he himself is wiped out. I share this in part, and again, there's more. You can look at Psalm 7, but the whole psalm, I really wonder if Israel itself, that remnant, will be praying this psalm in the days of tribulation. But things are heating up in Israel. And a little side note here before we go on. Behind enemy lines and all around Israel, things are getting dicey. Even dicier than they have been in recent months. This is confirmed intelligence from ground ground sources inside of Beirut. Massive weaponry, including the Shahab 3 missiles, the Scud missiles from the Gulf War, remember those? These have been moved from Syria into the hands of Hezbollah in southern Lebanon. So whereas Hezbollah was firing random rockets before that were landing here and there, and, and it rained down terror on Israel, it was nothing like the damage that a scud missile can do. Well, they have, they have the scud there now, and the scud missiles have a range of up to 450 kilometers, which means that the missiles from southern Lebanon can reach almost all the way down to Eilat in southern Israel. Jerusalem. Tel Aviv, Haifa, all of the cities that so far have been untouched by the missiles of Hezbollah and Hamas now will be easily within range. There's more. The Shahab's missiles are also capable of carrying chemical and biological warheads on them. Just last week, a Russian-class submarine flying an Iranian flag, interestingly, docked in Beirut. And what was being offloaded was done by men in hazmat suits with gas masks. What's that all about? It's thought by uh, military intelligence that perhaps chemical and biological weapons are already being transported to the front lines of southern Lebanon to be aimed and fired at Israel. The IDF is aware of this. In fact, for the last several months, they've been passing out chemical kits to Israelis, and it's been on the rise in the last couple of weeks. They've been pretty frantically getting chemical kits to families, gas masks for husbands, wives, children in the event of such an attack. It's estimated that 50 to 60,000 rockets and missiles are now hidden in homes, orchards, and schools along the Lebanese border aimed at Israel. Another thing to know. A massive tunnel network has been dug under the border of Israel from Lebanon into Israel. Why a tunnel network? So that you can get individual suicide bombers across the lines. Again, to rain more terror. There has been a great increase of the training of 14 to 17 year old kids by Hamas, by Hezbollah, who are ready to go through those tunnels into Israel as part of this massive campaign. There's a little bit more. Hezbollah has, in the last week, tightened down, locked down Lebanon. What do you mean, locked down Lebanon? The Internet is locked down in Lebanon. Associations with Israelis. Right now, if someone associates with an Israeli, they're either thrown into prison or they're assassinated. This is all preparation, I believe, for war. The final thing to note is there has been an intensive Iranian-Syrian and Hezbollah coordination. Chatter back and forth between these three organiza- two countries and this one terrorist organization. Why would this be going on? Probably because what Iran would like to do is, is make a pre- preemptive strike on Israel before Israel can make a preemptive strike on their nuclear facilities. And with those Scud missiles, something that they will be able to do, and we'll get back to the word, but I just want you to be aware of this so that you can be praying accordingly. What they plan to do with the SCUD missiles that they couldn't do before is take out Israeli airfields and render the Israeli Air Force unable to, to defend. And this is all happening right now. The Obama administration, in the meantime, is focusing on freezing Israeli construction in East Jerusalem. If your pastor knows this stuff is going on, what more do you think is really happening behind the lines that we're not even seeing, that we're not even aware of, that intelligence knows? Former U.S. General Paul Balley said, "Quote: "...Summer of 2010 is the tipping point of the Middle East. This has the potential of being a game changer. The chessboard has changed this year." Now I'm sharing that because as we read through Psalm 7, we hear David crying out for justice. We hear him crying out, and as I said, it sounds as though the voice of Israel is crying out that God would protect, that God would save, that God would be just. And for those of you who are praying, and I hope all of you are, for the peace of Jerusalem, this news can be troublesome. But in light of David's psalm, God has appointed judgment. And I would far rather be inside the country of Israel than in enemy territory. God has appointed judgment. Zechariah 14, verse 2, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when He fought on the day of battle. And when that day does come... Israel will know that they'll know that they'll know that self-defense is superfluous. But the defense of the Lord is what we need. Please understand that when we talk about God's defense in our lives against those who would slander us at work or at home or at play, that's so cheesy by comparison to a defense that is actual and tangible. I mean, God will defend you. Don't get me wrong. He'll defend you in relationships. He will defend you against slander and gossip, and all the silly stuff that goes on. But He's going to defend His people Israel in a way that will stun, shock, and amaze the world. Because God is a shield. Now, we leave the wild cries of Psalm 7 and enter into the calm evening of Psalm 8. Psalm 8. O oh Lord, our Lord, How majestic is Your name in all the earth who have displayed Your splendor above the heavens. By the way, note how it flows right out of Psalm 7. Psalm 7 ends, I'll give thanks to the Lord according to His righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High and then right into, O Lord, our Lord. How majestic is Your name in all the earth who have displayed Your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes You have established strength because of Your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. It is an uplifting, wonderful, encouraging, peaceful psalm. And you know, I'd love to bask here for the evening, but we're going to have to leave this psalm and come back and bask in it on Sunday. Move on to Psalm 9. And as though David were continuing... Psalm 9. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. Now, now, notice before we get into this, the heading for Psalm 9. For the choir director on Muth Laban, a psalm of David. Muth Lavin. What, what in the world does that mean? It's odd. Because this, this psalm is to be sung on Muth Lavin. What's that? On the death of a son. This is a celebratory song of victory sung either to the tune of the death of a son or on, on the event of the death of a son. What does this mean? Well, Spurgeon tells us that a considerable company of learned witnesses tell us that this psalm probably celebrates the death of Philistia's son, Goliath. That David wrote this psalm as a response to the death of Goliath. So keep that in mind as we read through this. Verse 1, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I'll tell of all your wonders. I'll be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. I praise you, Lord, David says. I praise you. I lift you up. Not my hand. I don't praise my strength. I don't praise the sling or the five smooth stones. No, I praise you. And David says, I do it with all my heart. You might note this in your Bibles, that word all in the Hebrew is kol. KOL and it literally means my whole heart. You can remember that because coal rhymes with whole. I will worship you with my whole heart, my whole heart, my entire heart. Psalm 103 verse 1, David said, "I oh, bless the Lord O my soul, and all that is within me bless his holy name. David was a man who understood worship like I don't know anybody else. David was one who got it. wholehearted worship. Remember when they were bringing the ark back into Jerusalem? They were doing it right. It was the second time. The first time didn't go so well. But they go back to the house of Obed-Edom where it had been staying for a while. And they bring it out. And every six steps they stop and they offer sacrifice and worship. Six more steps, stop, sacrifice, worship. And all the way up to Jerusalem, to the city of David, they bring the ark. Worshipping all the way. And David's dancing. And he's dancing before the ark in a linen ephod, which, which, by the way, is not his underwear. The linen ephod was the dress of the priest of the Levitical tribe. And he had the linen ephod on, and he's dancing and praising the Lord, and he's just, he is so into the Lord, King David has no clue what anyone else is thinking or saying about him. He is just loving God with his whole heart. Everybody in Israel is thrilled. They all go home after a wonderful day. David goes home, and Michael's there. Well, you've really distinguished yourself today. She's really offended by his behavior, his dance, his activity. David says to her in 2 Samuel 6.21, It was before the Lord who, by the way, chose me above your father (laughs) and all his house, to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will be more lightly esteemed. That is, I will become more undignified than this, and I will be humble in my own eyes. I don't care what you think. I don't care what the masses think. That worship was not for them. That worship was not even for me, David, saying. That worship was for the Lord. Wholehearted worship. Is your worship wholehearted? What? Where does your heart go when we start to sing? When the music begins, where, where does your head go in those times of worship? Are you balancing the checkbook? You know? Are you thinking about this person who's really got you frustrated? Are you? Are you wondering what you're going to have for a snack when Pastor Rick stops talking? and You can get home. Where does your heart go in worship? I'm not going to judge any of you, but I'll tell you what: there are oftentimes where my worship is probably more half-hearted than whole-hearted. And David, oh, he just he was so in love with the Lord, and truly, as I said a couple weeks back, you can't teach, teach worship. Worship has to flow out of a relationship. And so, why are we in the Psalms? To love the Lord more. Because the more we love the Lord, the more wholehearted our worship will become. The more He'll become our focus. And consequently, consequently, the less time it's going to take us to shake off the day. David wholehearted, I will praise you with all my heart. He says in verse 3, When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you. Which is exactly what happened with Goliath. You know, funk. Rock hits his forehead, and he stumbles, and he goes down, and his lights are out. You have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne judging righteously. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. David said, it's your wonders, it's your names. And notice this, he says you six times in these three verses. You, 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 you. Six times. Now, I don't know if it was purposeful or not, but I find it interesting that six is a number of a man in the Bible. Six times David says, no, no, it's not me, it's not me, it's not me. You, 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 Lord. It is all about you. It is all for you. My success, my vindication, my victory, my defense is only and completely in you. David hands all the credit over to the Lord. Jesus did that. Jesus exemplified this. Do you realize there's not a single time in Scripture, at least that I can find, where Jesus performed a miracle that the people didn't turn around and glorify God for it? Now they followed Jesus and they wanted to see what he was going to do next, and they were amazed by him. But constantly. Well, let me give you some examples. Matthew 9 8. Jesus healed the paralytic. And we're told when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God. It doesn't say they fell down and worshipped Jesus, although He was God in the flesh, but it says they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Matthew 15, 31, The crowd marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Jesus healed, Jesus did miracles, God got the glory. Luke chapter 7, verse 16, Jesus had just finished raising back to life the dead son of a widow and we're told fear gripped them all and they began glorifying God saying a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited His people. Jesus did the supernatural. Jesus did the miraculous. And all the praise and glory went straight to the Father. You've heard this verse before. Jesus said in Matthew 5.16 Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus did this. David is saying this. If in fact Psalm 9 is about taking out Goliath, David saying, I was just there. <laughs> I was really truly on the sidelines watching you sink the stone. Watching you take out the enemy. It was you. It always has been you. And Jesus' actions and David's actions, they're bringing glory to the Father and so, by the way, to you when you worship wholeheartedly. You know, we talked about mercy and, and repentance on Sunday and I would never before caught this or thought about my repentance being a declaration of His mercy. In the same way, my worship is a declaration of His glory. We've really got to learn to get our eyes off of ourselves and all these things, you know? Less thinking about how I come off when I repent. How I come off if I'm worried. Man, if I raise my hand and someone's looking, you know. Who cares? If it's honoring and bringing glory to God. Verse 6. The enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins. You have uprooted the cities. The very memory of them has perished. Who could that be? The Philistines. There are no Philistines in the land. I know the Palestinians claim to be descended from the Philistines, although the Palestinians are Arabs and the Philistines were European. So that doesn't work very well. There are no Philistines in the land. They have perished. The very memory of them has perished. Verse 7 But the Lord abides. Literally, the Lord sits as king forever. He has established his throne for judgment. And he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. How is God going to judge the people groups who have never heard of Him? I'm sure you've never been asked that question. What about the pygmies? You know? What about those in in the... Well, let's let's put a, a name to it. What about the 1040 window? 1040 window, that's that location in planet Earth, the region, that is 10 to 40 degrees north of the equator, from North Africa, running all the way around to China. It is the largest gospel-free zone in the entire world. It's known as the 1040 window because missionaries are targeting that and saying, that's the area that's completely unreached. That's the area the gospel has not gone. There are people living throughout that area who have never even heard the name Jesus. Well, Pastor, if Jesus came tonight, if His coming is truly imminent, what about all those people? All those who have never heard the name? Where's the justice in this? How can God judge them? Well, let me give you a couple answers. First of all, Matthew 24.14 says, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So we have a guarantee. The gospel is going to get out. Everybody is going to hear. The word will spread to the entire world before the end comes. But note this, and it's important. Jesus didn't say the church would do it. Which is good news because it puts no limitation on the coming of Jesus for His church. It puts no limitation on the rapture. Nothing, nothing has to happen at this point in God's prophetic calendar. It's all been done. Everything that God said He would do prior to taking the church home has happened. So we are in Graceland right now. (laughs) We're waiting for that calling home. And our being called home by Jesus, our being caught up to be with Him, has nothing to do with our completing the task of evangelizing the world. Oh, good. (laughs) I'm getting tired of worrying about that. That's not what I'm saying until Jesus calls us home, our primary responsibility as sons and daughters of Jesus Christ is to spread the Gospel. Is to get the Word out. And the imminency of His coming should be our greatest motivation. To spread the Word. But, it does not depend on us. Personally, I don't believe world evangelism will be completed before the rapture. I think the church is going to be taken up. And world evangelism will reach its apex in the tribulation. God is still going to be saving. It's going to be wild in those days. But there will still be salvation happening. We see in Revelation 7 specifically a description of those who come out of the tribulation. I read that a little while ago. Tribulation saints, those who are saved in that hor- horrifying and terrible time. But part of the answer to this question, what about the unreached people groups, is very simply, God will get the word out. He is going to accomplish this. But what about those who have already died in ignorance? What about those in the 1040 window who die tonight and Jesus hasn't come yet? What's God going to do there? The answer very simply is that God is going to judge with righteousness and equity. The Bible's clear about this. Whoa, what if they didn't know Jesus and they're not? God is going to judge with righteousness and and equity, you and I don't have to argue or worry about what's going to happen to the unsaved person over there that I have no relationship with. Because we can know absolute fairness, 100% equity, righteousness. That's how God is going to judge. And by the way, if you have a real concern for unsaved people, rather than using it for an argument, I encourage you to go be a missionary in the 1040 window. And if anyone ever comes to you and says, well, I just have trouble believing in, you know, that, that God's going to judge those people, then your response to them is, hey, maybe you're being called a missionary. Maybe you're being told to go. I mean, If you have such great compassion, it's funny, that'll, that'll either send someone into the mission field or it'll shut them up real quick. <laughs> Verse 9. The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble, And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Again, David is declaring our security is in total dependency on the Lord. Not fighting our battles, not standing up for ourselves, but simply depending wholeheartedly on the Lord. Verse 11 David says, sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare among the peoples His deeds. I like that. Give praise to the Lord who dwells in Zion. It's been said if the Lord has an earthly zip code, it would be 72080. What does that mean? Well, that's the zip code for Jerusalem. Because if there is an earthly place that God has called home that He says I will put my name that that's the place I will dwell. It's Zion, Jerusalem. There's a little problem with this verse in that if David wrote this about the fall of Goliath how could he be talking about Zion? Because didn't David conquer Zion like years later when he was king as opposed to when he was a boy with a sling? So how can he be talking about Zion and this be a psalm about Goliath? Well, that's pretty simple. Either David wrote it looking back, or even as a young man, David already had his eye on Zion. Either way, it still stands that this psalm is likely about the taking out of Goliath. Verse 12, he says, For he, speaking of God, who requires blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Literally, it says, He who avenges bloodshed, He hears. God avenges bloodshed. All the sin of man against man that resulted in bloodshed. Murder, rape, abuse. God will avenge it. And He will avenge it perfectly. We know Cain tried to hide Abel. Tried to hide the fact that he'd murdered his brother. What did the Lord say in Genesis 4.10? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. What was his blood saying? Vengeance. Justice. I was wronged. How do you know his blood was saying that? Hebrews 12.24 tells us that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Better? The blood of Abel spoke vengeance. The blood of Jesus speaks mercy. Mercy. Verse 13. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice, he says, in your salvation. I love that. I will tell of all your praises. How many praises are there of God? How many things can we praise and thank the Lord and worship Him for? I mean, will there ever be a point where we come to the conclusion of God's praises? (laughs) For every time we praise, there is yet something else to be thankful for. Every time we worship, there is yet more reason to be worshiping the Lord. It's a lifelong profession. And I'm not talking about this life. I'm talking about eternal life. That we will praise and praise and praise and continue praising and we will never run out of things to praise Jesus for. Verse 15, The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made. Sounds like Psalm 7, doesn't it? In the net which they have hid, in their, and their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made Himself known. He has executed judgment. In the work of His own hands, the wicked is snared. And then we have two interesting words. hagayon and Selah. Well, you know, already know Selah is a pause. So what's hagayon here? What's that mean? It means, literally, take a moment and think about what's just been said. Hagayon is a meditation. Selah is a pause. So it's a stop and then moving on musically. Haggaiyan is a pause as well, but it's a pause for the purpose of thinking about what was just spoken, what was just said. And so David says, think about it. Process this. Process what, David? That the work of his own hands will ensnare the wicked. The wicked have chosen their course... I heard a pastor talking about a bumper sticker that he saw that I thought was interesting, worth sharing with you. The bumper sticker said, Where am I going and what's this handbasket I'm in? Where am I going and what's this handbasket I'm in? The old phrase, going to hell in a handbasket. And the fact that someone would put that on their car and say... Yeah, that's me going to hell in a handbasket. It either expresses a complete ignorance of where they're really headed or an incredible, incredible arrogant rebelliousness to God. The work of His own hands will ensnare the wicked. You know, nobody going to hell is going to be able to blame God for it. It's going to be the work of their own hands. It will be their choices, their actions, their behavior that paves that way. The wicked will return to Sheol. Even all the nations who forget God. God, please, don't let America forget you. For the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Arise, O Lord, and do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you, oh, and they will. Put them in fear, O oh Lord, let the nations know that they are but men. Man, if we knew that, it would change the world. We are just men. We are not gods. David is right on. And again, we hear something almost prophetic of the judgment of the end. Matthew 25, is Jesus says, The nations will be judged like the sheep and the goats. Sheep to the right, goats to the left. And the difference in the judgment of the nations, you know what Jesus says it is? You Bible students, you know. It's based on what they did for these brothers of mine. Who's that? Israel. How the nations treated Israel will determine their judgment. Now quickly, most scholars and commentators believe Psalm 10 is an extension of Psalm 9. That it's just a continuation. So we're really not going into yet another chapter. We're just continuing on. Verse 1. Follow this out. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And we are living in troublesome times, as we've already seen, we've already talked about. These are times you could worry a lot about. But here in this verse, we see another distinction between David and Job. Job was saying, where were you when I needed you? David is saying, why don't you let the world know what I know about you? And I can relate to that. There are times I just I want to say, God, I just want the unbelieving world to see what we see. To know what we know of you to understand who you are in the same way that we... Can't you just do something to show them what you've shown us? Verse 2, In pride the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. And the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, watch this, all his thoughts are, there is no God. And right there we land on the core issue of wickedness. This is the foundation of all the sin of mankind in the world. There is no god the most wicked thing a person can think or subscribe to is there is no god Psalm 14:1 begins the fool has said in his heart there is no god and the reason why i say this is the point of greatest wickedness is simply this if there's no god there's no hope and there's no reason there's no morality there's nothing but survival of the fittest till death take us into darkness. If there is no God, who cares about anything? If there is no God, who cares about other people? Who cares about the planet? Who cares about, you? oh, we're going to save it for our kids? Who cares? Man, if there's no God, if there's no God... By the way, did you know that fossils now indicate that Neanderthals and humans apparently were interbred? (laughs) Yes, no, I read this in Useless Today just last week. They reported that new genetic fossil analysis has revealed that people of European and Asian descent have inherited traces from 1% to 4% of their genetic structure from Neanderthals. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and the paper featured a picture of a Neanderthal. I don't know how they got it. That was, well, the publisher, possibly. It was an artist's rendering of a Neanderthal man, and I sat there looking at the picture and going, "Man, that could be Lou Ferrigno." <laughs> Which, by the way, Cheryl and I saw him in, in Seattle about a month ago. Aren't you impressed? Yeah, Lou. Fer- I mean, he had a, a lower brow. He had a larger nose. And I, seriously, if you look at the picture, it could be anyone walking down the streets of Seattle on a normal day, in a suit, headed to work, and no one would think a second, no one would go, Oh, ah, Neanderthal! There's one alive among us! My point is the whole skull structure of a Neanderthal, you could take a skull of, of anyone today, and there would be really very little difference if someone happens to have a longer brow, if someone happens to have a larger nose, a cranium that is formed that way, and there are plenty of people who do. It it just blew me away. Now, I'm sure further study will show that the geneticists in this research themselves have far more Neanderthal inheritance than 4%. But when I read this article, one thought came to me. Why is man trying so hard to analyze our Creator out of the picture? What, what is this, this drive to prove that our existence came from goo? Why this push to say there cannot have been a creative element involved here, intelligent design, we won't even allow that to be taught alongside creation in the public schools. Talk about an absolute flip of things in our society. Now someone might say, well Rick, it's just one view, it's just a differing opinion, lighten up. Listen, it's that different opinion that brought about such things in our history as ethnic cleansing, genocide, and the Holocaust. Why do I get up in arms about things like evolution? Because of what it has caused. Because when you say, there is no God... And because there's no God, we must have just kind of evolved where we are. Then you, like Hitler, begin to think some people are better than others. Some strains of the human race better than other strains. Hitler was an avid evolutionist. Loved the writings of Darwin. In fact, in his book, Mein Kampf, Hitler used the German word for evolution several dozen times referring to lower human types in mankind. It was the whole basis of the Holocaust. That the Jews are a lower bred form of humanity and therefore unnecessary and therefore should be cleansed. Hitler was a fan of philosophers like Nietzsche and Schopenhauer who were big time forethinkers of evolutionary thought. Darwin took it to the next level. But these guys were already talking about it and here's the danger those who deny God will ultimately live out their denial they will ultimately act on the denial of the existence of God look at verse 5 his ways talking about the wicked his ways prosper or are strong at all times your judgments are on high out of his sight as for all his adversaries he snorts at them He says to himself, I will not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the hiding places, he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. In other words, this guy is devilish. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches. He bows down. And the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Now here's the irony of it. In verse 11, this wicked guy is saying, God has forgotten. But back in verse 4, the same guy is saying, there is no God which atheists do all the time. I've asked this question. If someone is truly an atheist, why are they so upset about Christianity? If you really don't believe God exists, why do you fight it? All you have to do is say, I know they're wrong. Okay, you guys believe whatever you want. I just just know there's no God. But they know there's a God. There's something inside the heart of every man. Whether you deny the existence of God or not, there's something in every human heart. I'm convinced that knows we know and so when push comes to shove he says to himself verse 11 God's forgotten he's hidden his face he will never see it he's not going to see what I'm up to he doesn't know about my wickedness my mischief Psalm 14.1 again says, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. But it goes on and says, They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. Because those who deny God live out the denial, just like Hitler did. He was just living out what he believed, folks. Atrocious. Horrific. Yeah. Evolutionary. He was just doing what the teaching said to do. Survival. Of the fittest, and that's the fool who says there is no God. Verse twelve. Arise, David said. Oh God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? He said to himself, You will not require it. You have seen it, for you have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. The unfortunate or the poor commits himself to you. You have been the helper of. The orphan. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. By the way, the best place to read the Psalms is from the perspective of your heart first. So as we say, Lord, seek out the wicked, the first prayer is, Lord, would you seek it out here? Lord, look into my heart. Seek out my wickedness until you find none. God, keep cleansing and keep cleansing and keep cleansing until my wickedness is gone. Anything carnal in me, deal with it. Clean it out. Verse 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from His land. What nations? Jebusites, Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, flashlights, the Philistines, Nations have perished from God's land who have tried to go up against God. And in all the things I share with you about the danger facing Israel today, understand that. Nations perish who try to go up against God. Verse 17. O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that the man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. Wow. And here we sit in days of terror. But it's not forever gang. Thank God as David does, terrorism will in and of itself cease. Wickedness will in and of itself perish from the land and the world. There will be justice. There will be mercy and joy and restoration and peace. And it's all because of one thing. And it's the theme, literally, of Psalm 9 and 10. What's that? Muth lavin. All because of the death of a son. The death of the son. Because of the death of a son, there will be justice and mercy. Because of the death of a son, we have everlasting life. Because of the death of a son, we have security and salvation forever. Oh, the Jews said it, John nineteen seven. They answered Pilate and said, We have a law. And by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. There will be ultimate justice because of the death of a son, Jesus Christ. Let's bow. Father, as our hearts, the Lord truly try to take in all of this tonight, we hear the question of Abraham again, shall the judge of all the earth not deal justly? We know it's rhetorical, Father, and we agree with Abraham. We know that you will deal justly. We are convinced and assured, Father, you will deal with righteousness, fairness, equity, and justice. And Lord, I pray that knowing that, would you help each one of us to go out of here without any chips on our shoulder, without any fear of slander. Lord, free from concern about gossip, things that might be said about us behind our backs, there will be justice. Things that other people might be speaking about us even now, there will be rightness made. Lord, I pray for this peace to descend upon us tonight by Your Spirit, that we just not worry. And truly, Lord, that we not seek to please man, but only be bondservants of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son through whose death we have life. And we pray this in Jesus. Amen.